Hi, everybody. This is the podcast version of New Things Under the Sun. This week's topic, adjacent knowledge, is useful. So innovation is hard because you have to step into the unknown, and it's never certain what you'll find there. Most of the time, there's nothing useful there. But we can use knowledge like models, uh, regularities we've observed, analogies from similar cases, and so on, to reduce that uncertainty. But that uncertainty is always still there. So when an organization or an individual learns new knowledge, with a bit of luck, that knowledge opens up new possibilities because it provides a map, which is, you know, more or less high resolution, depending on the state of things, of the unknown territory. So people whose business is innovation and discovery, they spend a lot of time searching for new and useful knowledge by reading, attending conferences, talking with people, etc. But this universe of knowledge to explore is just vast. So is there any rhyme or reason to searching through it? what kind of knowledge is most likely to be useful. Now, this is actually a really big literature, but today I want to look at three papers that use different metrics to suggest knowledge which is distinct but close to your existing knowledge tends to be most useful. So to start, let's look at a really clean experiment by Lane, Ganguly, Gale, Guinan, and Lakani. So Lane and co-authors, they run this experiment back in 2011, where they invited all the life sciences faculty and researchers affiliated with this large U.S. medical school to a symposium on medical research. As part of the symposium, participants get randomly assigned to different rooms where they could look at research posters and talk with other researchers. And attendees were also fitted with something called a sociometric badge, which is sort of like this dongle hanging from a, uh, like a lanyard. And the authors use this to determine who talked with whom. And basically, if two badges are within one meter of each other, they can sense that. And if they're facing each other for one minute, this paper codes those attendees as having a face-to-face interaction. So Lane and co-authors also measure how similar each attendee's knowledge is to their conversation partners. And the primary measure that they use on uh, uses these keywords attached to articles these guys have published. And all these researchers are in the life sciences, and the life sciences has this standardized vocabulary of descriptive keywords called the MeSH lexicon. And they rate two people as having a low overlap if their published work has only one, two, or zero MeSH words in common. They code them as having medium overlap if they've got between three and 11 of these MeSH keywords in common in their published uh, output and high overlap if they've got 12 or more of these mesh keywords in common. They then keep track of those attendees for the next six years to see what's the long-run fallout from these accidental encounters with new knowledge, or more precisely, with people whose brains have this new knowledge in it, presumably. So we're randomizing people into different rooms, then we see who they talk to, and we have very rough proxies for the kinds of things everybody in these rooms knows. So the first thing the authors show is that co-authorships are most likely to be born out of these conversations when researchers have an intermediate level of knowledge similarity. It may be surprising, but people are actually slightly less likely to collaborate if they have a very high level of overlap, and then they meet each other at this conference. Now, of course, there are other ways knowledge can be useful besides just finding a collaboration partner. Lane and the co-authors try to get at that in two ways. First, they look to see if people are more likely to cite each other's work when they meet. And once again, it's this intermediate level of knowledge overlap that benefits the most from a face-to-face encounter. Uh, What about knowledge that you can't directly trace back to a citation? That could also matter. So to get at that, this paper looks at those mesh keywords again. In the following six years, 
Are you more likely to start working on topics that match the keywords of your conversation partner? And it turns out, again, the answer is yeah, but only if your conversation partner has an intermediate distance from you in terms of their knowledge similarity. So remember, between 3 and 11 overlap, not more than 12 and not less than 3. That's all pretty impressive when you can think about that this is basically just a 90-minute opportunity to mingle. Now, that all said, all these researchers are actually affiliated with the same medical institution, so it's quite likely that they've got the opportunity to expand on these initial encounters if they found them fruitful. It's not like all of the ideas happened in that 90-minute conversation. Okay, so let's now turn to something different, a very different and non-experimental context. Again, what kind of ideas are found useful, uh, but this time by new agricultural technologies? So a paper by Clancy, Heise, Xi, and Moschini uh, from 2020, and I am the Clancy in this paper, identified slightly more than 50,000 U.S. patents granted between 1976 and 2016 for agricultural technologies. And here you should be thinking of things like veterinary medicine, GMO plants, fertilizer, pesticides, new kinds of tractors, etc. We then tried to identify the sources of the ideas that these patented technologies built on. There's no perfect measure for that. So we went about it in a few different ways. And in each case, uh, we found it was pretty common that the majority of knowledge, or at least our measure of knowledge, originated outside of agriculture, but not too far outside of agriculture. So I think this is going to be clearer if I give you some examples. For example, we look at the citations agricultural patents make to academic journal articles. And then we sorted the cited academic journals into different categories. Agricultural science journals, biology journals, chemistry journals, and then a category for everything else. Most of the time, patents cite journals that don't actually belong to the agricultural science category. But they still mostly cite chemistry and biology journals, even though the everything else category is much, much larger. So it's this knowledge that's close to agriculture that just tended to be, at least that seemed to have been more useful to them. At least that was our interpretation. And we also tried to identify the sources of knowledge that were borrowed from other technologies instead of just academic knowledge. For example, we looked at the citations these agricultural technology patents make to other patents. And we also looked at the actual text inside these agricultural patent technology, or agricultural patents. Specifically, for each agricultural subfield, we identified about 100 phrases, and that's a phrase here is like one to three words, that corresponds to a new technological concept. And we're looking for phrases which were absent from this agricultural patent record before 1996, but then relatively common thereafter. So we think of them as new and important concepts. An example is the word uh, pyrimethamine, which became common in veterinary medicine patents after 1996, but was absent beforehand. We then looked to see if these phrases popped up in other non-agricultural patents before 1996, and most of the time they did. So that means agriculture wasn't the first patent to use these new phrases. For example, pyrimethamine was pretty common in patents for human medicine before it began to appear in veterinary medicine patents after 1996. So what kinds of patents produce knowledge that's useful to agriculture? Most of the time it wasn't other agricultural patents. There's one exception there. Uh, patents for plants, like GMO plants, tend to heavily cite patents for other plants, and they also type, cite other agricultural research patents. But for everybody else, most of the time, non-agricultural patents were the ones we linked to agricultural patents via citation or all shared phrases. But still, even though they're drawing on ideas from these non-agricultural patents, 
these patents tended to belong to firms that also already had agricultural patents, even though these firms are in the distinct minority again. So most of the borrowed ideas came from firms who already had some pre-existing connection to agriculture, even if it was tenuous and it wasn't really their main area. So again, we've got two there. We've got life sciences, we've got agricultural patents. Let's look at one more example. Cornelius, Gokpinar, and Sting study this completely different context, temporary assignments of automobile workers to different factories in Europe. One thing that's really nice about this paper is it has a completely distinct measure of innovation. For this large, unnamed European auto manufacturer, employees are encouraged to submit ideas for improving the efficiency and quality of auto production. And these ideas are submitted to a database, and then they get evaluated and scored out to see if they'll save the company money if they're actually implemented. So the data set these guys have is employee ideas with dollar values attached to each idea. And this is really cool because it's super rare to find a data set that provides such a good measure of the value of an idea, even though you know, the value of ideas varies enormously. So this paper then looks to see what happens to the value of ideas submitted by employees after they visit another plant. Plants differ, and we'll talk more about how in a minute. So visiting another plant is a way to learn about different approaches for assembling auto parts, which is what this company does. After a visit, the average estimated savings of an employee's idea increased by about $25,000 per idea. And that basically stayed that way forever. In the short term, it was actually several times as high as that. And the notion here is that being exposed to new ways of doing things allowed these workers to think of new and better improvements than they would have otherwise. Now, the challenge a paper like this has to confront is that employees aren't just randomly assigned to visit another plant. The kinds of employees that are sent out for a visit tend to be really good employees, and they already, have, they already generate more than the average number and value of ideas. So if we just compared the value of ideas for employees who've gone on trips to those who haven't, we'd get biased results, since the people making visits probably would have had more valuable ideas, whether they went on the trip or not. And the authors do try to account for this in two ways. First, they look at only how site visits change the value of an individual's ideas over time. That is, comparing the same person's ideas before and after a visit. And then they also take into account typical trends in how idea value evolves over time. For example, more experienced employees usually have better ideas. In econ jargon, this paper has individual fixed effects and time-varying measures of idea quality. Second, the second approach they take is they compare employees who go on site visits to those who come from the same plant and are otherwise similar in their ability to generate valuable ideas, but one of these guys gets assigned to visit and the other doesn't. Whichever method you choose, you get the same kind of above result. Visits increase the value of subsequent ideas. Now, the interesting thing is not all site visits are alike. Some plants have significantly more overlap in terms of the products produced and the machinery that's used to produce. The authors find it's visits to these similar plants that generate by far the most value. Bottom line, learning something new by visiting a new plant increases the value of subsequent ideas for an employee, but that impact falls off if the plant is too different from the one the employee normally works at. So in these three cases, producing papers in the life sciences, descriptive work on the source of ideas in agricultural technology patents, and submitted ideas for improving the efficiency of automobile manufacturing, it looks like inventors find most useful ideas that are, or knowledge that is not exactly where they already are, but adjacent. But that's not the last word. This is a really big literature, as I said at the beginning, 
and we will return to this someday, but not now. Thanks for listening. And now it's time for the standard end of the episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation in accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast, or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.